everybody. Before we get going today, a quick little uh, story of something that happened this morning. Um, one of our ushers uh, had seen that there was a vacuum cleaner out by the door over here, and um, some of uh, there needed to be a little bit of vacuuming going on this morning. And before he went to put it away, he came into my office and asked, now, before I put this away, this isn't some sort of sermon prop or something like that, because I had a refrigerator out here last week, and he didn't know if maybe I was using a vacuum cleaner this week. And I told him, no, it's not a sermon prop. I have no props this morning, just the word, and look forward to sharing that with you today. Um, If you are someone listening online, we're great that you are very happy that you joined us and hope and pray that uh, this message and our time in the word is a blessing to you as well. As I mentioned before, we are in part six of this series called Starting Point, and um, because this is a series that kind of builds on itself point by point, week by week, if you've missed any of the weeks, I really encourage you more than most series to to check in and and catch up with what you missed because it all kind of connects together a little bit. And in essence, what we've been doing is asking the question, what it would look like if we had a conversation about faith But we had the conversation in a way as if the people who were listening were brand new to the Bible and to God. What would that conversation sound like? What are the things that we would talk about? And let's design a series in that way. So one of the amazing things or one of the interesting things uh, true about the series so far is we've talked about the starting point of faith. But we haven't talked about faith at all yet. Today's the day we're going to dig into what faith is and what faith isn't. And quite honestly, this is a really important discussion because there is a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions about what faith is and what faith does. And I hope and pray that our time together uh, clears some of that up for you. So at the very beginning here, what I want to do is to start with a definition of faith so that if you don't remember anything else, you can remember these two words. You know, I made a definition that even I could remember, okay? And here's the definition of faith that I'd like us to work with today. Faith is a trust relationship. And both of those words are important. It's not just that faith is not just a one-time thing. It's a relationship and has all to do about trust. Now, one of the things I want to do right now, though, is to weed that out a little bit because these are just words. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And to start, what I want to say is as I look out at all of you, I can tell just by looking at you right now that you're people of faith. And some of you are like, wow, Ben, that's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. What a nice compliment that you would say that to me. And most of you have, many of you have that eyebrow thing, like, where's, where's he going? Like, I can see it right now. You're doing that, okay? Stop it. I'm going to explain this, okay? Some of you are thinking, how can you say that? You can't see into my heart. You can't know that I have faith. Now, I didn't say that I know you have faith in Jesus or faith in God. I just said that I knew you were people of faith. Because right now, you are displaying faith in the chair that you're sitting on. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what a faith relationship, a trust relationship is like. None of you, that I can tell at least, have a big old pillow or cushion under your chairs just in case it would collapse. 
Some of you have your arms around your significant other or your daughter, but it's not in a way of, oh, I better grip onto her chair because if I don't, I'm going to collapse in my chair. Um, None of you are squatting like a catcher or, or crouching like a catcher, right? Wondering if your chair will collapse because all of you right now are in a trust relationship, a faith relationship with your chair. And I can tell it on your faces. None of you are nervous that your chair is going to collapse and for good reason, okay? You don't need to worry about that here at Bethlehem. We have, we're the church with chairs that don't collapse, okay? Something going for us right there, right? Um, you get faith. You get this trust relationship. Now, there's something else that's really important to consider when it comes to faith. It has less to do with the person, more to do with the object. So as an example, if your chair was made out of balsam wood, you know, that really thin paper type of wood, and popsicle sticks, the same confident people who are people of faith right now in their chairs would all of a sudden turn into people who either would not be sitting on that chair or would be kind of nervous to do so because faith has more to do with the object that we put our faith in than it does with the person. It has something to do with the person, but has more to do with the object. This is our second fill-in for today. A well-placed faith has a trustworthy object. If, if I would tell you and plead with you to believe me that I can dunk a basketball and sound very convincing about that, and you would believe me and have faith in that, I'm just telling you, I would not be a trustworthy object because if we'd get out on the basketball court, I would not be able to do that, and that is like a surprise to nobody here, okay? So you wouldn't have believed me in the first place, but if you had, I would not have been a trustworthy object. A faith that is well-placed, a faith that is, is a good faith, has a trustworthy object. That, In fact, um, a faith is no better, it is only as good as the object that the faith is placed into. So does that make sense? Object important, trust relationship. Let's go from just a general thought of faith to now faith when it comes to God and faith in religious terms. As I mentioned before, there is a lot of misconceptions about um, what faith does. And I think one of the prevailing opinions about faith uh, maybe could be best illustrated through a movie that came out not too long ago called Little Boy. Anyone see the movie Little Boy? Um, it's a pretty good movie. Don't watch it and think that everything that's in there, because it's kind of a, a faith movie, is, is, re, is biblically correct, because the main premise behind it is that this, this young boy wanted his dad to come back home safely from war, and the way that that was going to happen, he was told, is that he really, really needed to believe. He really, really needed to have strong faith, and it was as if... If he believed enough, if he had a big enough faith, he could twist God's arm to do things for him, and that a big faith meant a better life, and a big faith meant that you could move God a little bit, twist his arm to act just in your direction and for you. Now, this is not just a movie thought. Because I've seen this, I've heard this from Christians sometimes. They have a misconception about the blessing of a big faith. 
And when you believe that a big faith or faith at all is a means to twist God's arm, two things happen. And both of them have to do with doubt. Either the person who believes that begins to doubt God because they have faith and yet God is not healing my grandma. Or I'm not finding that person to get married to. Or my life is not going the way I want it to. So either it is a way that a person then begins to doubt God or they doubt themselves. They doubt their faith. I believe, but I must not believe enough because God is not moving in my direction. And they begin to wonder, do I even have faith? Am I even a Christian? Am I even saved? And when faith is an instrument to twist God's arm, to act in your behalf, people begin to doubt in one of two ways because that's a misconception. So here's, here's what we want to do. I want to tell you what faith is. And here's the thing. It's simpler than you might think. And at the very end of our message today, I also want to share with you that there is a blessing to a growing faith, but it's not what we just talked about. There is a blessing to a faith that's growing. So to do this, as I mentioned before, we're going to dig into an event that happened at the end of Jesus' life. It was one of the, those pinnacle events in the life of Christ. It was his death, his crucifixion. And we're going to peer into a very... I would say, odd and interesting conversation that happened while Jesus was on the cross. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32. Two other men, that would be other than Jesus, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed, to be crucified. So let's stop there for a second. Um, First thing that might catch people if they're at their starting point would be, it's kind of strange that Jesus would be crucified be crucified with criminals. We talked a lot about this last week, but just to be clear, there was a whole lot of difference between Jesus and those criminals. Uh, Jesus was not crucified or killed because he had done anything wrong. He was primarily killed because there was a group of people that didn't like him very much, that hated his claims and hated him. And so all of that led to them to move the Roman government to have him killed. There's a big difference between Jesus and the criminals. Now, let's talk about the criminals. We don't know a lot about them. We don't know their names. We don't know their ages. We don't know what they did. We don't know their background. We don't know if they have families or not. But the fact that they are called criminals and that they were crucified, we do know a couple things about them. The first thing we know is that more than likely, they spent a lot of their life believing or putting their trust, not in God, but likely putting their trust in certain lies in their life. They had transferred their trust to certain lies that just were not true. Like, what do I mean by that? Well, lies like, if my life is not going the way I want it to, it's okay for me to do just about anything I want to make myself feel better or to make my life better. Um, Lies like the end will justify the means. And at some point, they had to have determined in their brain that it doesn't matter who I hurt. I'm just going to go after whatever bad thing it was that they did, whatever breaking of the law it was that they did. Or, Or maybe it was this lie, that my life is not about God. It's not about my family. It's not about even being just a respectable citizen. My life's all about me and satisfying my desires. 
And whether it was any of those or others, here's what we can be for sure of. They believed lies. They were trusting in things that were not trustworthy. We talked about what faith is. They put their faith in non-trustworthy things. The other thing we know about the criminals is that what they had done was a pretty big deal. Let's put it this way. You didn't get crucified because you took a big gulp at 7-Eleven when no one was looking, okay? These were some pretty big things that they must have done because the Romans didn't crucify everyone. Why would they kill people if there was a chance that they could be of help as slave labor, right? You know, if, if someone who, who did some bad things were able to be, you know, rehabilitated, there's great use for them to help build buildings or to row ships or to even be thrown out as fodder into war. The people that were crucified most of the time were people. There was no chance for them to be rehabilitated. They had shown themselves to be sort of, you know, the only good thing for them would be to not be here anymore, at least in the eyes of the Roman government. Now, question before we continue. Do you see any of yourself in these criminals? Um, maybe not the second thing. I don't know if any of us, I doubt that any of us have done anything that would sort of uh, have allowed for the Roman government to feel like we needed to be crucified. Maybe we have, but probably not. But what about the first thing? We're talking about faith being a trust relationship and transferring your trust from your legs to the chair that you're sitting on. You're transferring trust to a trustworthy object. Have you ever transferred your trust to a lie or to something that just was not true and led you in no good direction? We had a, a series about this like two years ago. It was all about these lies that we find ourselves believing that lead us into ditches, lead us into, you know, sort of uh, bad places in our life. So what are some of the lies that we believe? I, I think one of the lies that is very prevalent is, if only I had, then I would be happy. And you can fill in the blank, right? If only I had a spouse, then I'd be happy. If only I had kids, then I'd be happy. If only I had more money or a new car or more vacation or whatever, then I'd be happy. The reality is, is that you know as good well as I do that some of those if-onlys you got and you're feeling the same way. Maybe it took a month, maybe it took a year, but you ended up feeling the same way you did before you had. The reason is that's a lie. A person isn't happy because what they have, there's a, a bigger picture to that. Uh, another lie that sometimes we believe is that my unhappiness is someone else's fault, <laughs> And so if, if I, you know, um, get a new spouse, well, then maybe I'll be happy this time, right? The thing is, is that when people have done that, almost all the time, if not 100% of the time, the same sorts of feelings come back, right, in most cases. Because our unhappiness, if we truly are unhappy, people is more than likely, almost all the time, not someone else's fault. Those are just two examples. There's a lot of other lies that we find ourselves believing. And this is what was going on with those criminals. They were transferring their trust to things they had no business believing or putting their trust in. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, the, the hill where they were killed, and it was called the skull because 
it looked from a distance like a skull. There they crucified him. The Romans crucified Jesus along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. This was a, a horrible way um, to die. Uh, it, there was pain involved. Uh, there was embarrassment involved. Um, and in fact, those who were crucified um, also just uh, suffered from um, being, I guess, in essence, their history kind of wiped from the face of the earth. What, what I mean by that is oftentimes when someone we love dies, most of the time we have a little grave site to be able to sort of go to and to remember them. Those who were crucified received a very undignified disposal of their bodies. They were taken off the cross. They were thrown in a dump to rot, to decompose. It's as if they never existed. And this was the end of Jesus' life not the taking off the cross part, but the suffering that he endured. And it was the tragic end to the tragic lives of these two criminals. Verse 34. And in the midst of all that pain, in the midst of all that difficulty, we see Jesus saying to those who were pounding stakes into his hands and feet, Father, forgive them, the Roman soldiers, for they do not know what they're doing. And then the soldiers divided up his clothes by casting lots. Verse 35. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at Jesus. So uh, it wasn't enough that they got him on the cross and were going to get rid of him. Their hatred towards Jesus was so much that they, even in the midst of his pain, were, were sneering or, or saying, mocking him is what I should say, mocking him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36. The soldiers also came up, and they also mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above Jesus which read, This is the king of the Jews. I want to pause just for a moment and think about the amazing grace of Jesus throughout this process. Not only was he being killed for, you know, and being an innocent person, not having done anything wrong, but even in the midst of it, he was asking God to forgive the people that were crucifying him. And then, in the midst of this event, there's this very strange thing that happens. Verse 37, or the next verse, 39. One of the criminals who hung next to Jesus hurled insults at him. Another way to say this, like insult is probably too light of a phrase. It was like they cursed Jesus out. One of the criminals who hung there said things to Jesus that you shouldn't say at church or say anywhere else is another way of saying that. They were just cursing Jesus out, this, this one criminal. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, the reason why I think this is so strange is the whole crucifixion process was a very um, energy-sapping process where a criminal a person would be on the cross for days at times, even sometimes weeks. And so for a person to expend that amount of energy to, in essence, yell, but maybe even just talk, to hurl insults at someone being crucified with him was a really strange thing. 
What was going on? I was trying to think about this this week. What was going on in this criminal that he would spend all that energy to hurl insults at Jesus? And I'm pretty sure I know, even though the Bible doesn't tell us specifically. I am guessing that this criminal is facing the reality of his mortality, and he's beginning to think about God stuff. He's wondering about eternity. You know, the truth is that I don't care if a person calls themselves an atheist or not or an agnostic or whatever it might be. All of us at some point in our lives, and usually it's towards the end of our life, if not before, think about eternity. Think about whether there is a God or not and about who that God is. This is what I believe is going on in the mind and heart of this criminal. And then there's this guy being killed right next to him who claims to be of God. And for this criminal, all of that thought about God comes out in anger and frustration. And God hasn't done anything for me. And my life was just horrible. Oh, by the way, whose fault was it that he's hanging on the cross? Um, That is this criminal. I mean, you reap what you sow, right? he, He... committed these crimes for, so that he was being crucified, this, this criminal I'm talking about. And yet, he's upset with God. He's hurling insults at Jesus. It gets stranger. Verse 40, another one of the criminals gets involved, and there's this conversation going on. The other criminal rebuked the first criminal and says, that the the first criminal is wrong. In fact, here's a little bit more of what he was saying. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Now, the book of Matthew, in his account of... um, the crucifixion of Jesus, actually gives us a little glimpse of what happened right at the beginning, even before um, what Luke records, that before the one criminal was hurling insults, that actually it began with both of the criminals hurling insults, cursing out Jesus. And yet by the time this happens and Luke writes about this, something had changed in one of them. Something had changed. Something had happened. And I don't know why it happened in the one. Maybe it was because of all the events of the day. And, and the one criminal had heard, let's say, uh, people saying how the, the Jewish leaders had Jesus killed, not because he had done anything wrong, but just because they hated him. Or maybe they even had heard Pilate say, you know, Jesus is innocent, but... I'll have him crucified anyway because you want it so badly. Or maybe he had heard some families talk about how this, this Jesus had healed my son of demon possession. Or maybe they, he had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Or maybe it's when this criminal had heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, instead of Jesus cursing out the Roman soldiers. We don't know when the change happened, but what we do know is that the Holy Spirit was at work in this criminal's heart to change his actions from hurling insults to one of rebuke to the other criminal and to also change his heart. Do you know what happened for this criminal on the cross in his last moments? He transferred his trust 
from the lies he believed about himself and about God and transferred it to Jesus and trusted him as Lord and Savior. And in fact, in the yellow here, we see how the criminal, in fact, gives a beautiful confession and ownership of the sin that he had. It's no one else's fault. I'm not blaming anyone else. It's my own fault. I have sin. This man, he's done nothing wrong. Our next fill in the blank. Oh, sorry, before that. In fact, the conversation continues. The man said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, gives a little more depth into where this, this criminal is thinking or what this criminal is thinking. Who do you ask to remember you? Someone you're going to see again. For instance, when you drop off your son and you know that you're going to see him again at Thanksgiving or you want him to call you, you know, when you drop him off at college, you say, remember me, all right? Give me some phone calls. Don't forget about me. Or, or maybe it's a, a friend who has some su- access to Super Bowl tickets and you say, remember me, don't forget about me type of thing. You know who you don't ask to remember you? You don't ask a guy with just a few hours to live to remember you unless, unless you believe that his death is not going to be the end. You don't ask a guy with only a few hours to live to remember you unless you believe, unless you trust that he's going to live again. This second criminal gives us a perfect, I guess, picture of what faith is and what faith rests on. Now, our next fill-in. Faith trusts that. So faith is a trust relationship. Well, what does it trust? Like everything? No. What does it trust? It trusts that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he's promised to do. That's the heart and core of, of faith, of Christian faith. At the heart of it, it's simply this, that you trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Savior, he's the Son of God, and that he will do what he promised to do, that he died, that he rose, that he's going to come back, that he died, that he rose, that he's going to come back to take us to be with him. Now, the reason why this is so important is I think sometimes people wonder whether they're Christians or not or wonder whether they can be a Christian or not. And the basis of that is a wondering about all of the details surrounding this, uh, some other details in the Bible. For instance, some of you are still bothered by Pastor Matt's sermon from a couple weeks ago about creation versus evolution, and you're having a really hard time with that and still not sure about that. And, and other people wonder, can a, can a a man really be swallowed by a fish like the Bible says that Jonah was and be puked up onto the shore and walk away to tell about it. And, and others doubt other things, that the Bible can be all inspired and true in every single way. There's a lot of things that people doubt and wonder about. And I believe all those things I just said are true. But what I will say is this, that when you're contemplating faith, you don't start with those things. It's a lot simpler, faith is, than all of those other details that people tend to have all the questions about. At the heart of faith 
is simply, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he's promised to do? But I have questions about. Good. I do too, actually. But it's okay to have questions and to have faith because faith is not understanding or, you know, being convinced 100% all the time about all the details. It starts here. Jesus is who he says he is, and he will do what he's promised to do. And through faith for that criminal, it was like a, a pipe, and all of the forgiveness that Jesus was winning on the cross came into that criminal's heart and life, and he received the benefits of it. Here's proof, our next verse. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Today, you will be in heaven with me. Do you know why the criminal received that promise from Jesus that he'd be in heaven? You know why he didn't receive it? Because he, he didn't receive it because he was going to go back home and give a big old offering to the church. He didn't receive it because he was going to go back, join a church, and have perfect church attendance from that point on. I mean, he was a little bit, you know, unable to do that at the moment, right? He didn't receive this promise because he taught Sunday school or played in the band or was on the guest service team or, or you know, volunteered for some charity. He was unable to do any of those things. This account is such an awesome example of how we're saved because this criminal could not do anything, literally, except believe, except trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he'll do what he's promised to do. And Jesus tells him, without a doubt, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Now, the awesome thing about this church is that we are so blessed to have lots of different people with lots of different faith backgrounds, and some people no faith background at all that feel comfortable in coming and hearing as we preach and teach about what the Bible says. And, and, and so the, that awesome thing, along with all the rest of us, leads me to give you two great encouragements, no matter who you are, that we can receive from this account about your own life and your own faith. The first thing is this. You can never do anything that will put you too far away from God. Think about the criminal. I'm guessing he did whatever it was, in worldly terms, something worse than you've done. And yet, God's grace and heaven was for him. You can't do anything that will put you out of God's grace or allow heaven not to be for you. But, what a, but you know, this thing I did when I was a kid or in my middle age, no, no. By faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The, the other thing that we learn from this account is that it's never too late to come back to God. I mean, this criminal is kind of pushing the limits, right? He's going to be dead within an, you know, a day or two. What literally happened was an hour or two. We know that through the biblical account. But it's never too late. And I want you to know that for you. I also want you to know that for the person in your life that you might be thinking about that has wandered from God, it's, it's not too late for them. 
Share the message of Jesus with them. The Holy Spirit is powerful and can work in their lives. Don't ever give up until that person is no longer here on this earth. Don't ever give up. It's never too late. It wasn't for this criminal, and it's not for your loved one either. It's not too late for you either. Now, when we started, I mentioned that I wanted to end by sharing with you why a big faith is important. Big or small faith, it doesn't matter when it comes to whether you'll be in paradise with Jesus. I mean, more than likely, in, in terms of big or small, this particular criminal probably had a pretty small faith. I mean, he had just had come to faith. So then what does it matter whether we have a big faith or not, or does it matter? And I'll say it does, and let me tell you or show you why by sharing just a really quick illustration um, that I heard from one of my pastor friends, and I thought it would be good to share with you. So I want you to imagine two people flying on a plane. And the first one flies all the time, two, three times a week. It's old hat. They're comfortable with it. Most of the time, they're asleep before the plane even leaves the terminal. They're so comfortable with it. And um, again, it's easy for them. The other person that's flying um, is someone who is totally anxious about flying. They're gripping the seat in front of them, every little bit of turbulence. They're looking up and looking around, checking out if the flight attendant looks nervous because if she or he looks nervous, then I'm going to be even more nervous. You know, it's just anxious city the entire flight. The question, which of those two had faith? Which of those two had faith? And it's a little bit of a trick question here because the truth is they both had faith. In fact, because if the second person didn't have faith, if they knew for sure that the plane was going to crash and burn, if they had no faith at all, they wouldn't have gotten on the plane. They would have rented a car and they would have driven to wherever they were going, right? They both had faith that the object, the plane, would get them where they wanted to go. And they both got there. Big faith, small faith, they both got there. What was the difference? It wasn't whether they got there or not. The difference in the size of the faith was how the journey went. See, with small faith, there's lots of anxiety and lots of stress on the journey. But with big faith, with a growing faith, there was more peace. There was more joy. It was a better trip. Our last fill in the blank A growing faith is something that brings growing confidence. Small faith saves. A big faith saves. But you can probably tell this in yourself or people around you. When the faith is small, there's more anxiety for this life, for the relationship with God, for the next life. It doesn't mean they don't have faith at all. It just means it's stressed and anxious and not enjoyable. But as faith grows... Peace becomes bigger. Joy becomes better and bigger. And so I would really encourage you to not be content only to be a person of faith, but where do we go from here? I really encourage you to be people of a growing faith. Come to church often. The Word works. The Holy Spirit's powerful. Spend time in the Word. Find a quiet time and a quiet place 
you just spend 10, 15 minutes reading, thinking, and praying. The Holy Spirit is powerful. The Word works. And a growing faith brings growing confidence. Next week, we're going to talk about this event that happens in many of our lives of where faith got its start. But until then, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word and uh, pray that no matter who we are or um, how we feel about you, that you, through this word, would have allowed us to either grow in faith or at the very least to consider faith. Lord, be with us and um, forgive us. Remind us that just like with the criminal who was given that promise of heaven through faith, that you and I, that we too have that same promise through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. At this time, um, our ushers will be gathering our offerings as this is an